You know, every time I hear that song, I often stop and wonder, <laughs> do we really resonate with the words in that chorus, in that verse, filled with wonder, awestruck wonder, at the mention of your name? You know, there's something to be said when we can consider that and stand in awe of who God is simply by hearing His name. And I challenge you, as I was challenging myself during that song, to ask the question, what keeps me from standing in awestruck wonder just at the mention of His name? And as we open the Word of God today, it should accentuate upon that. That if somehow we come expecting some magical response, we first have to step back and be able to acknowledge and recognize who is God. And why is He deserving of my worship? And that's why we come consistently to Scripture... We come back to God's own word to portray for us who He is. And not just who He is, but then who am I supposed to be as I stand in awestruck wonder. Something for us to consider. And so this morning as we think about that, I would challenge you, To answer this question for yourself. How well can you see? Now some of you are going, well, I used to be able to see better. And others of you, it hasn't even crossed your mind. It's just something we take for granted. Our vision, the way to physically see, to be able to look outside and see the colors. One of the things in moving from the West back to the Midwest that I came to appreciate so much more was the sunset. And sunsets are beautiful in the West if you get to a place where there's no mountains and the sun doesn't set behind them before it reaches that pinnacle sunset color. And, in fact, one of the most treasured moments yet in the past few months was when my oldest daughter was able to see the colors of the sunset really for the first time. Because she's lived her whole life in a place where you don't see that very often. And she just kept marveling and wondering, going, look at it, look at these colors, look at this all around. She was standing in awestruck wonder is what was taking place. It taught me. It was a lesson for me. And yet, in that moment, I thought, you know how much we take for granted the ability to see? And as an example of that, I want to read this this story, this brief illustration story to you. Coming from 1982 in the Los Angeles Times, about a woman named Anna Mae Penica, a 62-year-old woman who had been blind from birth. At age 47, she married a man she met in a Braille class. And for the first 15 years of their marriage, he did the scene for both of them 
until he completely lost his vision to retinous pigmentosa. Mrs. Pinnica had never seen the green of spring or the blue of a winter sky, yet because she had grown up in a loving, supportive family, she never felt resentful about her handicap and always exuded a remarkable, cheerful spirit. Then in October of 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute of the University of California at Los Angeles performed surgery to remove the rare congenital cataracts from the lens of her left eye. And Mrs. Pinnica saw for the first time ever. The newspaper account does not record her initial response, but it does tell us that she found that everything was so much bigger and brighter than she ever imagined. While she immediately recognized her husband and others she had known well, other acquaintances were taller or shorter, heavier or skinnier than she had pictured them. Since that day, Mrs. Pinnica has hardly been able to wait to wake up in the morning, splash her eyes with water, put on her glasses, and enjoy the changing morning light. Her vision is almost 20-30, good enough to pass a driver's test. Think how wonderful it must have been for Anna Mae Penica when she looked for the first time at the faces she had only felt. Or when she saw the kaleidoscope of a Pacific sunset or a tree waving its branches or a bird in flight. The gift of physical sight is wonderful. And the miracle of seeing for the first time can hardly be described. Powerful testimony. One that most of us probably can't relate to. And we often hear stories of individuals who may have lost their sight or with old age decreased ability to see and the trial, the struggle of that that takes place. But where I want to look with you this morning goes much deeper than simply physical sight and yet has such a profound impact on who we are in light of who God has called us to be. And that's when we ask the question, how well can you see? I want us to think about this in a spiritual sense. How well can you see God around you? In the workings of every day, in the little things, in the big things, in the moments of both joy and sorrow. How well can you see? Maybe none of us have ever had that radical experience. However, when we understand the depth of what takes place at salvation, and we begin to understand what a big word like sanctification or being set apart means, we will start to see the incredible truth behind that old hymn many of you would recognize, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And so this morning, if you walk away with nothing else today, this is the thing I want you to walk away from. And we're going to open our Bibles here, and this is all going to be from God's Word, because that's what matters, okay? But I want you to hear this, hear this. The cleaner our life becomes, the clearer God becomes. The cleaner our life becomes, the clearer God becomes. 
Now keep that in mind. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want to, we want to read through this because it's important that you see that we're not just making up ideas here. This is God's truth, God's word. Matthew chapter 5, if you have, don't have a Bible, that's okay. In the Pew Bibles, it's page 1473. All right? Matthew chapter 5. Let's read through that together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Heavenly Fathers, we open this text today and we come before you and challenge ourselves with what this looks like practically. May you open our eyes, open our spiritual eyes to see clearly who you are and what you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. The pure in heart, pure, clean, undefiled, cleansed. Now today, in thinking about how to understand this, we're going to take our time today and look at five common myths. Five common myths that church culture and the larger culture around us tends to believe. And then we're going to look at Scripture to identify why each of those are myths. Okay? Five myths. And most of these, at least one of these or several of these, you will have heard before. And if you haven't, you will hear it. Because it's everywhere. And I want to preface this, church. I want to preface this by saying everything that God's Word teaches us is for our own building up and maturity. And so I want to challenge you today. There is a, there is a very likely chance that there's going to be something in here that you go, I really don't like that. I really don't want to hear that. Because the life of a follower of Jesus... I hate to burst your bubble. It is not all rosy and wonderful all the time. That's eternity. That's the reward. But while we're still here, there is immense challenges that are faced in this. And everything that I communicate to you today through God's Word, God's Word speaking, I communicate with love. And I preface that because... This is stuff that was hard for me to hear this week. And know that I don't stand up here as someone who has mastered these things. I do so as a brother in Christ who is walking the same journey with you as my church family. But with that said, 
these things have to be spoken because if we don't, we run the risk of shaping church culture and our theology and our idea of who Jesus is based on our own perception and our own box rather than who God has said this is to be. So, myth number one, when we're thinking about a pure heart, being able to see God, myth number one, here it is. Because I have Jesus, I no longer need to grow. Myth number one, because I have Jesus, I no longer need to grow. I can't tell you the number of times I've encountered people who at a very young age prayed a prayer or made a verbal commitment and said, I believe, I follow Jesus. And the rest of their life, that is all they refer to. And there's never change, there's never shifting, there's never growth, there's never maturity. And yet, we communicate so easily, if we're not careful, that because you have Jesus, you don't need to grow. You are tainted by your sin. Jesus paid for that. That is done. But He calls you to become like Him. He calls us to something beyond who we are, beyond what we are when we first recognize our need for a Savior, when we mourn our sin. And turn with me, keep your finger in Matthew 5, but turn over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he gives them uh, multiple challenges focusing on unity in the church, instruction in how they should walk and how they should live. But in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11... He establishes the reason he gives giftedness of certain people and the purpose they serve in the church. And he writes to them and says this, And he gave, he being Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why does he do that? Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, listen to this church, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Oftentimes we confuse this and we say, well, God gifted a certain amount of people to step beyond where it's supposed to be and that's how it's meant to be and I'm okay, I, I believe in Jesus and that's fine for me. I'm good staying where I'm at. No, 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 no. 
The whole reason God has given us teachers and shepherds and leaders is so that we won't stay where we're at, but that we gradually move to become more like who He has called us to be. To literally grow up in every way. To come to full maturity. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So I ask you, church, have you tasted that the Lord is good? We're going to try that again. Church, have you tasted that the Lord is good? then the call of Scripture is that we would not stay where we are, but that we would grow up. That we would grow up together to be the church that God intended us to be. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul encountered a problem with the church not wanting to grow up. And he said, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So you might ask practically, this myth, because I have Jesus, I no longer need to grow. What are evidences in my life that I need to grow further? And I'm going to highlight just a few of those. If we are more concerned if we are more concerned about what someone wears than who they are in Jesus then we need to grow. If we are more concerned about how a building looks than the purpose for why we gather, then we need to grow up. And if we are more concerned about how everyone else looks and how everything else sounds than we are about who we're worshiping, then we need to grow. And I say that out of love. And that is not something that is reserved to one place. That is perpetual across across state lines, everywhere across this country where we so easily become distracted. We say, I believe in Jesus, I'm good. And we stop growing and we become so self-focused that we lose sight of Christ in the process. Church, don't believe this myth that because you have Jesus, you don't need to grow. Myth number two. 
Perfection is impossible, so why try? Matthew 5, verse 48 says, You therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Talk about a challenge. What in the world? Now, I want to clarify and encourage you that in no way is the expectation that somehow we're going to be perfect from sin. That is eternity. But perfection here biblically refers to a maturing, a growing, a seeking of full maturity. In Galatians 5.16 it says, Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And how many times we can hear someone say, Oh, I'm just a sinner. That's the way I am. So why do anything different? Because that's who I am. And I'm not going to be perfect till heaven, so it's okay. No, it's not. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Flip over with me to Second Peter, chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. And I want to preface this passage, understanding the context. In verse 1, Peter says, This is to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is who this is to. Okay? Starting in verse 3. Peter writes this, of chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear this, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. How well do you see? When our life becomes cleaner, when we become pure, when we seek to become mature followers of Jesus, the clearer who God is and what He has done becomes. Myth number three. I can maintain purity of heart and immerse myself in worldly lusts and pleasures. 
Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. 1 John 2 verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And many of you could quote Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. But I want to challenge you in this way, because oftentimes we take this to an extreme, and we say, because I'm called to not be of the world, I choose to never associate with people who are living by the world's standards. I choose to only associate with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, you know what? I really don't have many opportunities to share the gospel. It's a convenient excuse, isn't it? And yet, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And he goes on from there and instead talks about how we're to keep each other accountable in the church. And he says, if there's a brother who's living in sin and claiming the name of Christ, that's where you need to have an issue. In essence, you shouldn't expect anything different from the rest of the world around us. Should we be surprised that those outside of Christ are acting in a way that is outside of Christ? And not at all. And yet, the challenge for us is assuming that I, as a follower of Jesus, can indulge in all of these things. And we have to be really cautious with that. Do people look at us and see a pure heart as Christ has called us to? Do they see someone who's living for Jesus or see someone that, by the standards of this world, is no different than anyone else? Myth number four. This one is one of the most common ones I hear. Come as you are and stay that way. Come as you are and stay that way. Does God love you? Yes. He died for you while you were still immersed in your sin. Romans 5.8 does that mean God is okay with a lifestyle contrary to His righteousness and glory? No. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to grow. And if we don't need to grow, then we sure don't need Jesus. Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. And in the Greek, it's a double negative. Two negatives right after each other, which is an emphasis. is an exclamation. No! Why would you think that? Because God has poured out His grace upon us that we can just continue sinning because God's given us grace. Why not? By no means. How can we, this is the rest of that passage in Romans 6, how can we who died to sin 
still live in it. Now again, I want to encourage you. This does not mean that you need to walk out today and somehow gain perfection over your sin. But it means very clearly that if we're seeking to follow Jesus, if we're seeking to grow to become more like Him, then these are the questions we need to be asking. Am I just allowing my sin and my shortcomings to flourish and thrive? Or am I embodying the principle in 1 John that says if I confess my sin, He's faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The last one. Myth number five. Sin or impurity. We're talking about blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Sin or impurity is only committed externally. This is another myth. And to illustrate this clearly, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Where Jesus encounters the Pharisees on this very concept. And in fact, this whole chapter in Matthew is Jesus communicating these woes to the religious leaders of this time. Because they have lost their sight. They, they aren't seen clearly. And in fact, they're upset with Jesus because of what he's been doing. And so Jesus calls them out on these various issues. And in verse 25, he says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Church, we're deceiving ourselves if we think that as long as my external, who I am outside of this is okay, that I'm okay. And it's an internal change that has to happen. That has to shift. And there's hope in this. There's hope in this because that's why Jesus came. So I ask you, where is your focus? Are you able to focus on who God is? Are you able to see Him and His will clearly? And if not, what is blurring your vision? What is blurring your vision? The last place we'll turn is Hebrews 9. And I want to close us with this passage because it comes back to really where we need to come back. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 13.
says this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Listen to this, church. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more has Jesus accomplished? Not so that we could stay where we are, not so that our hearts would continue to be tainted by sin, but that we would be purified from that. How much more when we recognize our spiritual poverty, grieve our sin, and see His mercy and grace, should we be compelled to replicate that in our daily lives? How much clearer all that He is becomes when we stop being okay with who we are and start striving to be all that He is. Church, we must recognize that if we truly desire to see God in our everyday lives, we must focus our eyes on Jesus. Church, we must recognize that if we truly desire to see Christ face to face in eternity, we must place our faith in the only way, the only truth, the only life, and the only way to the Father. To recognize that the cleaner our lives become, the purer my heart becomes, the clearer God becomes. Not pure in the sense of somehow better, better off. Purity starts when we recognize that there is some scrubbing that needs to take place in my life. Not just external scrubbing, but internal change. That I may drink from the cup that brings life to my weary bones. Maybe you're here today and you are searching, you are looking for God and you just can't seem to see Him anywhere. Jesus came so that we would have access to the Father. Hebrews 10 tells us that we could step into the holy places through the blood of Jesus. Focus our eyes on Him and seek to purify our hearts in a way that who God is and all that He's called us to become so much clearer in our sight. How's your vision? Where do we need to grow? Heavenly Father, we commit this to You and I pray that You challenge us with this this week. That we can see clearly who you are and what you've called us to for your glory in Jesus' name.